Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. Hey friends, we are back with our regularly scheduled programming. Yes, we have another great interview with Hannah Pryor. She is a highly sought after workplace performance expert and an award-winning two-time TEDx and global keynote speaker, author, and executive coach. Her clients actually call her their secret weapon for impossible change, and it's an honor that she wears proudly. She's known for her science-backed approach to improving the performance, habits, and actions of hungry high achievers and her fun, no-nonsense, no-jargon way to move them from their first level of success to their next one. We talk all about Henna's interesting career path and dig into the work she's doing with her best-selling book, Good Awkward, which was actually endorsed by NFL quarterback Russell Wilson, love his wife, Sierra, and former HBR editor Karen Dillon, and the book actually received the rare Kirkus star for excellence in writing. Yes, I just love Hannah. I love my conversation with her, and I know you will too, so let's get to it. All right, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm just excited to learn more about your story. I love the work you're doing, so thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about all this. Absolutely. So I do like to start from the beginning, all the way from the childhood. So can you tell us about your childhood? Tell us about how you grew up. Yeah. My origin story actually plays a huge role in who I am today and the work that I do now. So at the very beginning, I am first born of immigrant parents. My dad was born in India. My mom was born in Pakistan. They were arranged in marriage, and he's 13 years older than her. So she was 17, he was 30, which is, I think, just an interesting starting point for most folks who didn't grow up with that context. But they married and moved to the United States. 11 months later, had me. So it was very quick, you know, firstborn, first-gen American daughter. And here they are in the land of opportunity. And something that they really wanted for this firstborn, having come from overseas, was a chance to try all the opportunities. <laughs> so I was a busy child. I tried all the things, dance, soccer, jazz, swim lessons, like, you know, a little bit of everything. And, you know, my parents were that sort of typical story of hardworking, you know, worked their way to the middle class, didn't take anything for granted. My sister and I never wanted for anything, but through them, I learned for sure the value of put your mind to something and nothing can stop you. You know, work hard, make good choices. Nothing can stop you. But also being a beginner a lot, because again, all these opportunities, they're like, you're going to try this, you're going to try that. And it really informed a lot of the choices I make now as it relates to taking risks, especially professionally and at work. I love that. I love that. Because sometimes when you hear about the immigrant story, it's actually, it doesn't inform a risk-taking spirit. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's interesting that you had that upbringing. And can you tell us more about who you were as a person, as a child? How would your family mm -hmm. describe you? I was always a spotlight seeker, I think, to a degree. You know, it's funny. I don't like to say that out loud because I feel like it has connotations, but you watch 
the tapes from back in the day of my sister and I. And I was, you know, I was like, hi, it's the henna show. And I'm like moving my sister, you know, pushing her off the screen, which is funny because I'm a keynote speaker for a living now. And so the running joke is, you know, what was your personality in school? Were you ever voted like the kid who talks too much? And then what do you do for a living now? I'm like, yes, I was. And I'm a keynote speaker for a living. So yeah, I think generally an extroverted, friendly kid. But I will say, I wanted to fit in really badly. You know, being firstborn of immigrant parents, I constantly felt like the me I wanted to be on display was clashing with the me that people actually saw, right? I They didn't have cool American clothes fashion sense. They came from overseas. So I wore like you know, looking back, clothes that didn't quite look like everyone else's. My lunch did not have a white bread and peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It was like kima parata that made the whole cafeteria smell kind of funny. You know, it kind of felt like my childhood story was one of bumpy edges. And while I love my name now, you know, my name is Henna. I wanted it to be Jessica or Samantha or, you know, Jennifer, I'm a child of the early 80s. Like I desperately just wanted to assimilate. And so a lot of my childhood story was looking for who I was through the lens of who other people saw. And it took me a long time to sort of break that pattern of trying to identify my own identity through my own lens and not other people's. I love that. And I feel like so many people can relate to that story. And I appreciate you sharing that. Now I'm so curious. We're going to circle back to that. But I want to get to your career. And we talked about risk-taking and how that's something that you've learned in your childhood. And I Mm -hmm. think it's certainly reflective in your career. Can you talk to us about one of those big pivots in your career? Yeah. So my career is actually composed largely of two very significant career pivots. So let me back up and maybe make one distinction as I tell you about these two pivots. I had a lot of experience being a beginner, but I would not say that I was fed a narrative about risk-taking because I think, again, generationally, a lot of our parents, risk-taking was not on the table. It was more about financial stability for a previous generation and then add to that immigrant parents. So I would not say that they encouraged me to be a risk-taker. It was still very much a, would you like to be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer? You know, that was kind of what was on the menu before. But what they did encourage was being a beginner right? Trying things over and over. So I don't know that risk-taking was in my blood early, but I did get very comfortable being a beginner. And it wasn't until later in life that I started to see the relationship between those two things. And so my first career out of college, I went to University of Delaware. My major was finance. My first career was the stable, not risky job of working in a big four public accounting firm for three years, which people who meet me now, they're like, you were an auditor. I'm like, yep, I was an auditor. And While I made some of my best friends in the world, very quickly was like, this is sucking my soul out of my body every single day. I don't enjoy it. And so I made my first pivot, which was to professional staffing. So finance and accounting staffing, which is executive search, you know, placing people in direct hire positions. That was risky, really risky for me because I went from a salary job at a prestigious international big four public accounting firm to a job that was 100% commissions. So I received a draw, but it was a commissions job. And I remember telling my parents that I wanted to do this. And they kind of had this look on their face of like, what? You want to do what? Right? You work for this prestigious, stable public accounting firm. You want to do this? Now, luckily, and I give them a lot of credit, they trusted my judgment at this point. You know, I generally proven myself to get good grades and whatnot. And so I did this. 
transitioned within a month. I knew how much I was going to love it. I spent 14 years there, which led to pivot number two, which is the hard pivot. Leaving public accounting was easy. I did not enjoy it. I was ready to try something else. Leaving my 14-year staffing career was terrifying because it was financially lucrative at the time. I was very good at it, humbly. I had earned a lot of prestige and pedigree for having had some aptitude for it. And the only reason I started to consider what was next is because for two years, I had a little voice in the pit of my stomach saying, you've outgrown this. Like you're good at this. People are appreciative of what you do, but you're not growing anymore. You're not learning. You're not stretching to your next layer of potential. You can do more than this. And so when you have a great job on paper, at that time I had my husband and I got married in that job. I had my two kids in that job. They were flexible with me well before COVID made everybody flexible, right? It was very challenging to leave because on paper I had no reason to leave. And the only reason was to answer that inner calling that there was something else that I could do. And I finally listened and I started off on my own path, which led to this current role as workplace performance expert, speaker, author, executive coach. All things, if you asked me four years ago, would be in my future. I would have said, Ashley, are you crazy? Like, are you crazy? (laughs) And so to be here now is kind of surreal. Yeah. Wow. That is surreal and inspiring. And I love how you talked about that inner voice and how you just weren't growing anymore because there's different seasons in life, different seasons in your career. And it sounds like you needed all of those different seasons to be where you are now. And I'm curious about the transition, the second hard pivot, right? So Mm -hmm. what was that inner voice telling you? What kind of work did you want to do? What kind of problems were you trying to solve? Yeah. What the inner voice first told me was there were two people in me that were in tension very loudly. There was this one version of me that was the high achiever and that had kind of built an identity at this firm as someone who is, you know, a top performer. And that voice was loud. That voice was like, you like it here. This feels nice, right? You're good at this job. You don't have to worry about it too much. But then this other voice kept saying, you are the person that everyone is learning from. Everyone's coming to you to figure out how to hit their next level of growth, but you don't really have those people around you that are going to help you hit your next level of growth. And it kind of felt like, am I done? Right at this, you know, I'm in my early 40s. It was like, am I done? Is this it for my growth trajectory? And I knew that voice just kept getting louder and louder. You are not done. You are not done with your impact and what you're able to do. And so in staffing, which was the industry I worked in, what was interesting about that job is I had a front row seat as to what made people stay in their jobs, what made them happy, and then a very front row seat into what made people leave their jobs right? Turnover. Like we were in the direct hire space. We were helping companies find people for their jobs. And often those openings were because people left. People were unhappy. The company leadership wasn't, you know, kind of holding up their end of the bargain. And so I would watch this stuff play out over and over. And what I realized was that vantage point of seeing what made companies work and then what made teams not work was a really useful background to have as I made pivot number one, which started as executive coaching. What could leaders be doing differently? How could they turn inward to see what role am I playing in some of this 
turnover in some of this attrition? Or how do I become a leader that is so inspiring and so great to work for that people never want to leave me? And so that really was kind of the itch that I sought out to scratch when I decided to leave. Yeah. And if someone is in a similar position, their inner voice is telling them something. Like, this is not it. Like, there's more. There's more within me. Do you have advice for that person? Yeah, I have a lot of advice for that person because this person was me for so long. I would say twofold. First of all, no one is suggesting or demanding that you leap without a parachute, right? I think it's really brave and amazing when people are like, peace out this job, off to go be a you know barista in the Caribbean. Like, cool, good for you. That wasn't me, right? I grew up in a household where stability was valued. And so I started to make explorations well before I made the decision to move on. So when I started to think about executive coaching, I had a very candid conversation. And then I'm grateful that I had a company that did not immediately show me the door when I did this. But I said, hey, I'm interested in this topic of executive coaching. I think I'm going to go take a certification class in D.C., I'm not intending to leave at this point, but I just feel like I want to stretch and grow this muscle. Maybe I'll use it here. Maybe I'll use it in this job. But I started learning about new areas of interest while I was still in my staffing career. It was pretty quick that I realized I had a deep interest in this new topic. But outside of that, kind of step two is I'm very big on placing small bets, like place small bets and plant seeds. So again, before I even considered officially leaving, I thought, okay, what's the smallest viable bet I could place on this executive coaching thing? So I first linked up with as many female executive coaches as I could find on LinkedIn and just said, hey, I know how busy you must be, but I'm someone who's considering this as a career path. Would you be willing to give me five minutes of your time? Most people are afraid of bothering people, right? Like I don't want to bother people. Believe it or not, People are generous. They were there once, and they are often much more willing to give you a few minutes than you think. But the metaphor I often use is you cannot look into your next career path or into your next step if there are no lights on. So if you're looking into a closet and it's dark and you're like, what shirt do I want to wear? How do you know if it's pitch dark? You can't see anything, right? So rather than trying to navigate this in the dark, having these few conversations with these executive coaches about what was the best thing about you making this transition? What was the hardest thing that you didn't expect? What were some of the mistakes you made early on? Slowly felt like turning the lights on, right? In this closet to see, okay, here's what I'd be walking into. And then once I decided, okay, I think, you know, even the scary stuff feels like stuff I could manage. What was my smallest next step? Can I take on one client, no money for free, while I was still at my staffing company to try it on, to see how it felt. And it slowly built from there until I had a little bit of a feeling of certainty that if I let go of this trapeze and grab that one, that I'm not going to fall flat on my face. But it doesn't have to be this abrupt 180, right? Place small bets, little small bets to help you inform whether or not this is something that you actually want to do. Yeah, such great advice. And you mentioned a few things that I want to point out. One was that you had this conversation with your company, and I think that's such a great example of being in a a supportive work environment and also building trust and having relationships where you can have that conversation. I think that has been very instrumental in my career when I was thinking about leaving litigation and just trying to maybe focus on investigations or thinking about leaving the law together. I was able to talk to leadership at my firm. I was able to talk to partners. They are helping me figure out my transition 
But at first I was afraid. I was like, well, I know they want to retain me, but what they really want is at least for these organizations, for you to be a great brand ambassador. So maybe you do great work while you're there, but then you can always be a great ambassador for that specific place because they helped you get to where you want to be in life. They helped you find alignment. They helped support you as a human. And I think that the fact that you've had that conversation is so instrumental. And another thing is just reaching out to people. You're also right about that. Like one of my mentees, he just reached out to me on LinkedIn. I was like, oh, he's young. (sighs) He needs advice. I love it, of course. And now, you know, I talk to him every month. So I think that those are great examples of just being a great human in this space and how people really do want to help you. I'm curious now, speaking of being a great human, you're a great human, doing great work, inspiring people. And you talk a lot about awkward confidence. Can you tell us about the work you're doing? Yeah. So it's funny, you know, I didn't set out to become the awkwardness expert, but this is lately my friends are like, how does it feel to be the awkwardness expert? I'm here for it. And I'll tell you why, you know, any confidence or poise that people observe from me now, you know, I am a keynote speaker for a living. So there's a level of eloquence that I have to be trained in, in order to be successful at this job. But I laugh because my whole life has felt like a story of trying to buff out my bumpy edges. Like I have felt relentlessly awkward my whole life. And so the interest in this began when many of us who study professional development, personal development, were you know, very latched on to Brene Brown's work when she first began. And in her podcasts and in her interviews, she would have this line towards the end that she would often say, which was, stay awkward, brave, and kind. That became one of her taglines. And I remember saying to myself over and over, okay, brave, got it. Yep. I know what that means. Kind. Yes. My parents taught me always be kind. Stay awkward. Mm -mm, I don't want to, right? I've been trying to avoid that my whole life. And so I got very curious about this emotion in particular. And what I knew in my bones was that this flawless confidence or this super polished confidence was never happening for me. Like I am just too raw. I am too clumsy. Like if I get laughing really hard, I cackle, I snort, like it is a mess, right? Like it's just, it was never happening for me. And reaching for that version of confidence just felt like a failing game over and over and over. And so what I started to explore were who were some of the people, whether it's in Hollywood, whether it's in business, female archetypes that I was most drawn to. And what I found was that It was these women who exhibited what I now refer to as awkward confidence, which was a form of grounded confidence. They embrace their awkwardness. They embrace saying the dumb, silly thing, right? So my opening story in the book is about Jennifer Lawrence. She is someone who is gorgeous, has won every award under the sun, is a super talented actress, makes all the money in the world. Most social science says when someone is that ultra successful that we should like immediately start to hate them after a while, right? There's like almost this backlash. And she didn't get that because she tripped over her dress at the Oscars. And she shares these stories about how when she was trying to do modeling, her nostrils were flaring and they didn't use any of the photos because they're like, what's going on here, right? She was so awkward and so clumsy and fumbly and stumbly and imperfect that all of us found her incredibly relatable, We couldn't help but feel drawn to her. 
and some of the most awkward women and just in general, male, female, or otherwise, that awkward people are actually the most confident. They've just learned how to embrace it. They don't linger in it. They don't let it hold them back. They have done the mental work to lean into it and to have a fast comeback rate. And we interpret that as a form of primal confidence. And in that kind of confidence, I was like, that I can get on board with. So that's the new goal, awkward confidence. No more of this polished, hyper smooth stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you said something else great there too. Use the word relatable. And Mm -hmm. I agree. I think we're in a space just from a generational perspective and time perspective where the relatable content, TikTok is huge right now, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be just full aspirational, but now we want a mix of aspirational and relatable. We want to feel seen. We want to have someone to aspire to, but also know that we could be just like that person. And so awkwardness is a great way to do it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Issa Rae's work with Mm -hmm. Awkward Black Girl. Yeah. When that came out, that YouTube show, I watched it so much. Yeah. Just religiously. I loved it so much because I felt like, oh, this feels like me. Like, yeah. You You feel seen. Yeah. And these are the edges that too many people try to buff away. And I think you're right. Like, societally, even though we've got this like interesting paradox where the TikTok trends are to be more yourself, but then we've still got these overly filtered Instagram stories and these AI avatars that make us all look like these ridiculous, you know, according to my avatar, I have like a teeny tiny nose and like flawless skin. And so it's a little bit of both. And it's this very weird tension of, are we okay with bringing our whole selves or are we still trying to buff it away? And right now it seems like the modern generation is trying to figure out how to navigate that tension. And the danger becomes this performative authenticity where you're like, look at me, just keeping it real, but you've like planned it right? Like you planned that TikTok thing. So you're like, is it, you know, there's a bit of skepticism, but the goal is not to purposely show all of your bumpy edges. It's just understanding that when you do, most people aren't giving you the grief for it that you think. In psychology, it's called the spotlight effect. People aren't paying as close attention to you as you think they are. And if they are, honestly, it's not for long until they focus back on themselves. That's just how human brains in the modern era work. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. And I know you talk a lot about it in the book. Could you share maybe one or two tips for listeners on how to embrace their confidence, their awkward confidence? Yeah. There's lots of different ways, but really they fall into two buckets. The first is self-awareness. I think awkwardness is one of those emotions that benefits from a little bit of a peeling back of the layers. So one sort of unknown example that people have not often explored is the relationship between awkwardness and a phenomenon called vicarious embarrassment. So when people learn this, they kind of have this aha moment of like, oh, that's interesting. So vicarious embarrassment essentially means how prone you are to feeling embarrassed, not just for other people, but with other people. So one way that you can test for this, just a simple little test, is there's a genre of movies and TV called cringe comedy. So for example, The Office or America's Funniest Home Videos or Curb Your Enthusiasm, 40-Year-Old Virgin, there's a whole genre of comedy that's essentially built around laughing at social awkwardness. And some people love cringe comedy, right? They can watch it. They can laugh. They're like, these people are such idiots. Makes me feel better about myself. Other people 
cannot watch it. They literally want to bury themselves under the comforter. And the reason for that is because vicarious embarrassment doesn't mean just you're embarrassed for the other person. So in America's Funniest Home Videos, you blurt out the wrong thing or whatever, you fall on your own two feet. Not only do you feel embarrassed for the other person, but you literally take it on as though it's your own. And so that type of embarrassment is actually related to a certain type of empathy. Those who are a little higher on a certain type of empathy tend to feel other people's social pain, other people's embarrassment, as though it's their own. Why is that an important piece of self-awareness? Because if you feel other people's embarrassment almost more than they feel it, right? If you're taking that on, then it becomes very difficult to take the little risks that you want to take because you're always worried about the reverse. You're always worried that people are feeling that level of awkwardness and embarrassment with you. When often that's not the case. They're fine. We're the ones taking that on. So it becomes a projection. It becomes almost a form of judgment. So it's just a cool little pieces of self-awareness, a cool little test to see how might this be something that I'm having block some of my own progress. Awareness is number one. Number two, and I'll just kind of go through it quickly and we can get into detail if you'd like, is it's conditioning. It's reps. We live in a society that keeps optimizing for social smoothness. Awkwardness is a social emotion. We don't usually feel awkward when we're by ourselves. It's something that we feel in front of other people, whether it's in person, digitally, online, but it's an embarrassment or an awkwardness that happens because other people are in the room, again, real or virtual. And increasingly, we don't have to deal with people. Like we order our food online on DoorDash, on ToastTab. We, instead of uh, ringing the doorbell at our friend's house, we text here from the driveway. We don't have to do these things anymore. So the next time we're in a social conversation and something goes sideways and we're like, oh gosh, this is awkward, our muscles are not strengthened enough to handle it. They are weak because we're avoiding these situations more and more, sometimes on purpose, sometimes as a function of society. And so intentionality is really key here. In order to tolerate awkwardness, we have to put in the reps. And ways that we can do that is in the grocery store line, don't stare at your phone, right? When you're on an elevator, don't hammer the closed door button because somebody's about to get on, right? Can you create little micro moments of keeping these social muscles strengthened? It's really key if you want to learn how to tolerate awkwardness in your life. Yeah, I love that. I think that's such great advice too, just also from a human connection perspective. Like I always say to my husband, I'm like, am I becoming an old millennial auntie because the I'm like, Gen Z's on our, they're on our elevator and they have their headphones on. I say hello to everyone. And that's my personality, but I just don't want to interrupt people anymore. And mm-hmm. I've noticed those little, and I think there's science-based research, those little interactions at the coffee shop, on the elevator, holding the door, whatever it may be, how are you? Or even I just say, you know, how's everything going to someone on the elevator? I said that the other day and it kind of spiraled into this great conversation mm-hmm. about about just like how tired we both are. And, you know, and so I think it's interesting. You're right. We don't have that muscle and we're losing a little bit of that just human connection and how to deal with it. And I'm curious about how awkwardness has showed up in your own life. Is there a specific Mm. story that comes up for you? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> this is the girl writes a book about the good awkward because awkwardness is part of the everyday. I mean, I can't count how many times I am, 
you know, I'm often praised for the speed at which I move professionally. You know, my brain works fast. I talk fast. But the downside of that, the shadow side is I don't always think carefully before I speak or I don't always read the room carefully enough, which has led me to many an awkward situation. So I'll just share an example. One of the stories I share in the book is, you know, after the pandemic restrictions started to lift, I got to meet a client in person for the first time. So backing up, some people are like, is this a book for introverts? No, I am not an introvert. In fact, I'm very much an extrovert. But everybody's muscles, social muscles, when not used, can weaken. They can atrophy. And we all discovered that during the pandemic because when we started meeting again with friends, family, we're like, what are we doing? Are we fist bumping? I can't read your face. Like what's going on here, right? We started to see how those muscles could weaken. And so I I met a client who it was my first time starting to to reconvene with leadership type meetings. And I was trying to pitch them on like a training program. And we we talked for 15 minutes. I gave him 15 minutes of my finest sales pitching, right? I'm like kind of crushing it. And he puts his hand in front of his face. So for those who are just listening, hand in front of his face. And I'm thinking, kind of God nailed it, right? So I give him a high five because I'm thinking he's high fiving me. And the next thing he says is, I was putting my hand in front of my face to tell you to stop. And I was like, oh my God. Like totally misread that, right? Totally. Did I forget how to human? Oh my God. I was mortified. But in that moment, I had a choice. You know, was my face red? Yes. Did I feel the heat in every corner of my body? Yes. And I either could have stayed in that moment and let it derail the rest of the conversation, or I did one of the tips which I recommend in the book, which is, believe it or not, naming the awkwardness diffuses it more quickly. It kind of takes the tension out of it. So I said as quickly as I could get it out of my mouth, oh my gosh, I misread that. That was awkward. Big cringe moment, right? Immediately, his shoulders relaxed, my shoulders relaxed. And I would say that it even created a moment of connection for us, like this very human, we laughed about it together and we moved on. But there's always situations like that where you're going to have certain expectations of yourself. You're going to have certain expectations of how the conversation is going to go. But awkwardness lives in uncertainty. You don't tend to feel awkward when you're sure You tend to feel awkward when something you expect it's going to go one way and it goes another. And so learning how to live in that tension is key to not having it hold you in its grip when it happens in the future. Yeah, yeah. Another great story, hilarious story, but I love how you handled it and naming it. I think that's so important in so many different contexts, but especially in the awkward ones. And I just noticed that post-pandemic for me as well. Just yeah. I'm a social butterfly and still was like, oh no, mm-hmm. I said this, just, oh, you know, after attending yeah. maybe a work event. So it's something we all deal with. I love that you're addressing this issue. And I'm curious about your purpose. You've had this really interesting journey. I'm curious about your purpose in life. Have you defined that for yourself? Can you share it? Oh, it's such a big question. And I think it changes yearly, but I'll say where it feels most crucial in my life right now, my purpose today, as I would describe it, would be to have everyone, but mostly women, be able to look at the things that they've long seen as their shortcomings or flaws and reframe them as the thing that might be the key to unlocking everything. So awkwardness is one of those. 
my second TEDx is on bragging about ourselves, right? Which I was raised in a household where it's like, no bragging, you'll get the evil eye, right? Some of these kind of narratives that we get. There are so many things that women especially look at in themselves as deficiencies. And I think that that holds so many bright people back from their fullest potential. They just get so stuck on these things as being shortcomings. And increasingly, my purpose feels like helping people do that mental work, that mindset conditioning to reframe what they think are their garbage things into their gift things. And that that work feels like I could do it all day and for free. Yeah. Yeah. And that means you're really operating your purpose because you could do it for free. And you said something earlier in the beginning about, and I don't want to misquote you, about essentially trying to bend who you were to be a reflection of other people around you uh, because of how you grew up and how it took you a long time to disassociate from that. And I think a lot of people, including myself, can really relate to that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Was there a pivotal moment? Did it just come with age and time and experience? Mm -hmm. All of the above. So interestingly, there's some newer research that talks about this. They talk about, it's a Harvard study by Francesca Gino and her team. They talk about performing and the word that they use is actually catering. So often, especially in professional environments, people think that they will get ahead or do better in their professional work by catering to others' expectations, essentially putting on a bit of a performance for who they think other people want them to be, right? Meeting their expectations. And actually, the study finds that catering reduces workplace performance. So it's not to say that first impressions don't matter. They do, right? You want to have a strong first impression. But over time, if you continue to show up at work as the version that you hope other people will see, there's actually a a diminishment in performance. So a study was done with a bunch of entrepreneurs who are pitching for investment, and they found out that when they were people were catering to try to tell the investors what they wanted to hear, they were actually three times less likely to get the funding than the entrepreneurs who came in just stumbly, fumbly, but real passionate and honest about who they were and what they were trying to do in the world. Those people were three times more likely to get the funding. Not only that, performing is exhausting, right? I remember those days, especially, you know, and people will recognize performing because at every inflection point in our career, in our life, it kicks up. You know, when you started a new class at a new school, that first day, that first week, kind of performing a little, right? You start a new job, you're trying to like be that version, first date, first promotion to leadership. Every first, there's a little bit of that performing. And what happens is it's taxing. You fall asleep, like collapsing at the end of the day because it is emotionally exhausting to put on a mask of this version that you hope is palatable to the masses. And so it actually zaps you of the energy that you need to actually perform at your full potential. So some of you know my own personal journey came from kind of learning that about some of the data. But I would say in my own experience, it was slowly over time, I would let the veneer of my kind of version that I showed people, I would slowly crack away layers of it kind of as a test. Like if I snort laugh in this meeting, <laughs> are they going to think I'm an idiot, right? And I would like allow myself kind of what we talked about before to place small bets little by little, let sides of myself show And lo and behold, not only did I not get kicked out of the room, not only did people not fire me, not only did they not reject me, 
But as I let more and more of my edges show, things got better. People liked me more. I had more opportunities. Work felt more fun. Work felt more free, right? And so little by little becomes a lot. And I think in my case, it was just over time that I started to discover the power of letting all these edges out. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that as well, because I think sometimes there's certainly institutional issues that we need to deal with to support who we are and our authentic selves and our humanity. But a lot of this stuff is us. And there's ways that we can change and test, like you said. I like how you said, you just test it bit by bit Mm -hmm. because every work environment is different. You want to see what you can do. And I noticed that that was extremely helpful for my legal career. And I think that a lot of us are too afraid. And it's analogous to kind of the work that you're doing with being awkward. We're too afraid to kind of embrace it. We're too afraid to embrace our authentic selves, but not embracing the awkwardness, not embracing our authentic selves is exhausting. It is taxing. And so it's beautiful to see when someone has stepped into their full purpose and has stepped into who they are. And now you're helping people do that. And this conversation has just been so wonderful. And I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners. Yeah. I think honestly, if I can share one final thing, it's based on something you just said, which is important, which is For better or worse, we do still live in a system where women and women of color are disproportionately scrutinized and confidence sometimes in certain environments needs to translate to some level of flawlessness, right? And that is facts. So what you said about systemic factors, let's not diminish those. And so I think what you said is really important as it relates to embracing our awkwardness Awkwardness is not the same as ineptitude, right? If you are generally seen as someone who is competent and smart and good at what they do, a little bit of awkwardness is not going to hurt you. It's actually going to make you more endearing and more likable. But as you started to say, you know, dipping of the toe in the water about psychological safety, what are the expectations of me here? Are there other people who look like me who have not been, you know, penalized or punished for what needs to be some sort of level of flawlessness? Knowing your environment and testing for that is key. But for many people, a little bit of well-placed expression of awkward discomfort can actually go a long way in making us more relatable, more human, more likable, more fun to be around. So there's a lot of upside to letting our blunders show. Yes, yes, lots of upsides. Yes, thank you so much, Hannah, for coming on the show. It was a blast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember... You're not alone.